Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. England. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah. So if I were the sole arbitrator. It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't. exteriones equal to. Arriba. Hello, welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Ewald Dahlqvist Kullborg. And I'm Brian Kodak. Together, we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world and 1% sunshine. I can actually see the sun for the first time in like six weeks out through my window. And I've submitted my dissertation. So it's proverbial sunshine in my life as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're talking about sunshine, where are you in this world, Joel? I'm in Copenhagen. Where are you, Brian? I'm in London. And I think I see a ray of sun about 60 miles south. Not quite sure. <laughs> It's if break. you look to the northeast, you might see Copenhagen <laughs> sunshine. <laughs> uh, you submitted. Huzzah. Oh, I sure did. I feel like I've given birth and or lost weight at the same time. I'll speak for all women and say, you don't know what it's like to give birth. <laughs> okay, <I know>. <laughs> unlike you <laughs> <laughs> exactly um that's it must feel like such a weight off your shoulders i know we've discussed it a lot but uh tell the listeners how you feel i i feel empty mostly right and uh i've been just i have so many other things that i put on hold that i had to like start with 15 minutes after i submitted so i haven't really celebrated yes and of course i mean for the record i haven't defended the, the the dissertation yet i just submitted it and gone over the proofs and so on but the actual defense i.e the party is still <laughs> six weeks away <laughs> i.e the party what uh, i mean what is the defense what like how does that play a role in your actual phd acquisition it's i mean it's the thing it's it's where you um get or do not get your phd and it looks differently i think in different i know it looks different in different jurisdictions but in sweden it's um, one opponent an external person typically a professor or associate professor from another university who shows up for a few hours and uh, grills you basically on the thing and then there's a board of three senior academics one of which is customarily from your own faculty although not your supervisor and two external. So those three are the ones who make the determination whether or not it's a passable dissertation that's been submitted. Uh, and then you, in Sweden at least, you get uh, the uh, the pass or no pass call on the same day, like a few hours after, depending on for how long they deliberate, of course. So there's a chance that you could do the defense and they say, Joel, what does an investor mean in investor state arbitration? You're like, I don't know. And then they would fail you? Um, nah, not unless the text also reflected the same ignorance, I think. So the, okay. the, the, the determination is made, I think, primarily based on the text. So not much can go wrong if it hasn't already gone wrong, so to speak. You, they can't like invent right. new or find new mistakes or faults with your work. That's not already in the text, but... Since my text is probably full of uh, blank spots and weaknesses I haven't thought about, I might get a few tricky questions. So 
you could put, and then there's like a party afterwards. So you're basically going to find out at the party whether you pass or not. Yeah, right before. Typically, the 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 thing the defense goes on until like lunch from early morning, and then you have lunch while they deliberate on the board, and then they come back after. You know, it takes between fifteen minutes and three hours, depending on the nature of the deliberation. So you get the the decision in early afternoon. So you have, in the ideal scenario, a few hours to rest before the party. And then you'll be <laughs> Doctor D. Dr. Dahlquist, cool boy. Yeah, exactly. In Germany only and maybe some other place where they (laughs) care about titles still. (laughs) Will you return any mail that is not addressed to doctor for um, uh, the wrong recipient? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'll call them up. Like, excuse me. School um, them. I don't know who this Joel you're referring to is, but Dr. Dahlquist, cool boy, is very much here. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. No, but I'll probably start using it and submitting articles and stuff like that of course well that's the american side of me i would have it branded on my back if i were if i were you <laughs> it's so when i asked uh, this is actually really embarrassing but when i started at Mannheimer, i we got they were business cards ready for me on my desk on my first day and i was so excited because i had just passed the bar exam and i was you know an esquire in american terms and so it, you really work for that esq at the end of your name and um and then my business card said Brian Kotick, and I was like, it doesn't really say Esquire, so I got new business cards made. Oh, you, you went back to whoever did it at the firm and instructed them to do it differently? Yeah, I was like, hi, first time here, first time being a lawyer ever, really. Um, I have a couple of demands. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, like, poor Agneta, she was like, she's like, who are you, and what is yeah. this ESQ? damn american yeah so i've softened my soft skills um so for everyone listening i'm not as rambunctious and boisterous as i was before (laughs) um well that's exciting joel congratulations let's um move on and i'm sure we're going to talk about it so much on this podcast so i don't need to give you so much spotlight now because it takes away from me um Right. How are you, Brian? Let's just do. You get thirty seconds to talk about your life before we move to. Well, nothing's changed. Real thing. Joel, it's actually quite boring. Um, which is why I can tell you about the I Reporter, which is the um, the proud sponsor of this podcast. Hopefully, they're proud. Um, we can at least, with all s- s- sanity, say that they're a sponsor of the podcast. It's the online service um, provider that is focuses on international investment law. They've been up for 10 years, and their expert team of analysts offer informed and incisive analysis, as well as investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential. So check them out at iareporter.com, and we thank them for their support. And we can also announce that we have a changing of the guard in the arbitration station. In the research department. In the research the back department. office. um we did have and we spoke to for the first time we saw him um live and in the flesh we had rishab rahija who helped us with the past uh, five episodes five and a half five and a half and because he's his research will be on um this episode as well so this is his final hurrah his last lap um feel free to contact him if you have any other questions or any inquiries or any research assistant tasks because he 
we can say um, with all honesty was a wonderful addition and produced some stellar research work for us and really cut down on our work. That's Rishab Rahija. Um, we can put a link or to his LinkedIn on the podcast description so you can find him. Um, but then we are changing the guard to Dmitry Mendikov, Mednikov, sorry, um, who is a Russian citizen and I guess lives in Russia. <laughs> we don't know he's a citizen. I haven't asked for a passport. That's true. Verification. Um, we will have to do that. But we welcome him to the team. I mean, he's already been on the team, but we welcome him to this episode and um, and thank him for his contribution thus far. Right. Changing of the guards. Changing the baton. <laughs> Um, and then finally, the last thing that I will bring up is that the podcast is going on the road again electronically, but um, we have been asked to cooperate as a media sponsor to the ICC European Conference. It's the third annual ICC European Conference in Paris on the 1st of April, 2019. So that is this April, April 1st. Um, it is not a joke. It's actually happening. So don't think that's a joke. <laughs> Um, it's the kickoff event for Paris Arbitration Week. I had the honor of speaking at the second ICC European Conference. Um, and this, the theme of this year's conference will be um, the public interest and the future of arbitration, lessons from Europe. Um, and they have a program with a lot of distinguished panelists. It'll start with Eurovision, a year review, which is what my panel was about. There'll be a welcome address from Alexis Moore, the president of the ICC, and Alexander Fessas, who's the secretary general who reached out to us for this opportunity. Then they're going to talk about the intra-European versus extra-European means for settlement of investor state disputes. And they will have an Oxford-style debate on the safeguard of international European domestic mandatory rules by arbitral tribunals, which is actually a really interesting topic, something I've looked into recently. Um, and finally, they will have the long arm of state justice managing documentary evidence obtained through a state's special powers, which sounds exciting. Um, and that will be chaired by a partner at our firm, Maria Kostiska, so that they have some great names and we encourage everyone to sign up. You can go to the website, which is iccwbo.org, and you can go to their events page and you will see the European Conference webpage. Um, it's iccwbo.org slash event slash icc-european-conference. And that's my only contribution here is that I know that WBO stands for World Business Organization. That's a good thing to know. That is a great thing to know. I did not know that. Why is what does the World Business Organization mean? It it's it's the ICC. It's like the the UN is the World Organization. The ICC is the World Business Organization. Or they want to be, or they ah. call 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 themselves. So this is why I have a PhD and you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Soon can we be maybe. the WPO? <laughs> The World Podcasting Organization? No, I have no interest in, okay, fine. in helping other people. Will you uh, let us know what we have on tap for today? Yes, we have three topics. We haven't decided the order. How you'll do the immunity thing. How how meaty do you think it will be on a scale of 1 to 10? From like 1 to a filet mignon? Yeah. Probably a flank steak. <laughs> is that a six <laughs> yeah yeah i mean right i can't delve into the intricacies of every like local okay. jurisdiction I, that's good I, then i think we'll do that first because mine is is meteor so we'll start with a, a, a light course of sovereign immunity 
mm-hmm. served up by Brian Kotick, followed by uh, a very, I don't know what that would be, some Kobe beef, like very, <sighs> losing all the, the uh, analogy powers. So <laughs> let, let me just say <laughs> the subject instead or the topic, it's um, something it turns out that I've written a lot about for I Reporter in the past which Rishi, our researcher, helped me figure out because I had actually forgotten about that. And that is the the power for a tribunal to reconsider its own decisions. Mm-hmm. So whether, whether or not tribunals can go back before the award has been rendered and change or revisit something they have already decided in like a procedure order or a partial decision or a jurisdictional decision or or whatever. In investment arbitration, I should say. Is this based off new facts, new evidence, new arguments, or exactly. all of the above? Exactly. exactly, yeah. And, I mean, in, in theory, uh, it's a principal question as well, even if there aren't new facts or new, exactly. new things. Can you still go back? It has to do with the res judicata of decisions as opposed to awards. It's exciting. It is. And so is Happy Fun Time, which is about teaching. And here we haven't synchronized our watches one bit. We have no idea <laughs> what to talk about. I have some ideas. I assume you have some as well. And we'll see if they'll collide. Yeah, I mean, Joel teaches or taught uh, at the arbitration, the investment arbitration masters in Uppsala University. So and has written a book on the topic, everyone. Um, so I, clearly you'll have more to input than I have. I've just been like a visiting lecturer at Stockholm University and for your program. Um, so I will give kind of the adjunct professorship um, angle on the topic, but you'll give. Yeah, more. and I, I think that's something that we should talk about as well, like the uh, inherent conflict between professional lecturers and, and uh, people who do other things full time yeah. and also teach because our field is very different from any other fields, I think, in the sense that students tend to appreciate actual practitioners teaching and the practitioners also appreciate teaching, which, of course, prompts the question, do I play a role? Who Is there a purpose best? for me? <laughs> <laughs> the existential academic question. <laughs> do I exist? You do, Joel, you matter. Yes, thank you. I hope that we'll do this uh, over a beer to console my philosophical fears <laughs> but first it's uh, sovereign immunity all right now will we we will be uh discussing the first topic substantive segment on this episode which has to do with sovereign immunity in international arbitration um, it actually was a topic that I had to do in one of my application processes for my interviews for firms. So um, it does come up, whether you like it or not. Um, so state or sovereign immunity, you can use the term interchangeably, protects a state and its property from the jurisdiction of another state in the context of administrative, civil, and criminal proceedings, as well as enforcement measures. Um there's different types of immunity and also smaller groups of immunity within the broad concept of sovereign immunity, which has to do with um, diplomatic or consular immunity, um, as well as, you know, it's codified in separate conventions, what type of immunity we're going we're gonna to be looking at. Um, and those would be considered like specialis of the general regime of state immunity. But for the purposes of this segment, we will be limiting our discussion to the general broad concept of sovereign immunity. Which is too bad, I think, because the diplomatic immunity is the sexy part 
of state immunity. Right. That's nothing to do with arbitration, but what diplomats can and cannot do and how they are treated by their host state, it's, I think that hits the news way more than immunity from enforcement of arbitral awards. <laughs> I mean, you can't even get pulled over for a traffic violation if you're a diplomat, right? Well, yeah, I mean, you you'll, you can get pulled over, but you can't be prosecuted. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can be stopped, but... So, so it has to be handled by diplomatic means. And mm -hmm. there's a famous thing, I don't know if it's true, but that's there's the, there's a list, like, up on a board on the Swedish Foreign Ministry in Stockholm of, like, states who have misbehaved. And when, you know, you reach 10 incidents, you get a note. 20 incidents, you get a phone call, you know. There's, like, a whole hierarchy of... of uh, how to address diplomatic uh, missteps because you can't do it legally, so you have to do it <laughs> diplomatically. <laughs> it's like sending your kids to boarding school. It's like <laughs> you've uh, your second cousin is acting up in class. <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, the sources of state immunity, sorry, Joel, we're going to stick to state immunity. The sources of state immunity are based primarily on customary international law, but there's also national laws um, that enact what the scope of the immunity is. For example, you have the State Immunity Act of 1978, the SIA that comes from the United Kingdom, or you have the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976, the FCIA in the United States. Um, and there's several treaties in this respect that try to um, codify state immunity, but they don't necessarily have um, universal participation. You have the Brussels Convention of 1926, only with 31 participants. You have the European Convention on State Immunity that has eight participants. And then you have the UN Convention on Jurisdictional Immunities of States and Their Property. Um, that was signed by 28, ratified by 22. Um, and that's based on the ILC draft articles on jurisdictional immunity. But they are mostly just considered a codification of customary international law and not necessarily an enforceable instrument in its own right. Um, so who benefits from state immunities? Well, clearly it is the states themselves, which is rather obvious. Um, and the UN Convention defines state, just, just as Joel said, you have um, these diplomats running around. Can they be an arm of the state? But um, the state is defined as um, the state itself, uh, its various organs of government, the constituent units of a federal state or political subdivisions of that state, which are entitled to perform acts in the exercise of sovereign immunity. That's the key wording there, the exercise of sovereign immunity and acting in that capacity. Um, another definition is agencies or instrumentalities of the state or other entities to the extent that they're entitled, entitled to perform and are actually performing acts in the exercise of a sovereign authority of the state. And finally, it could be a representative of the state acting in that capacity. Um, and this is really when I've, I've been like emphasizing the parts of those definitions that are most important because it has to, it's basically an agency issue, right? So does this person have the capacity or the authority to act on the state's behalf? Did they actually act in the state's behalf? And was this an exercise of that authority that they had? Um, so that is where we see it. What about state-owned companies? Um, because it is, you know, the state acting as a sovereign, but it's not really, right? They're acting in their commercial interest. Um, but a state, it's kind of a mixed bag because if a state-owned company is performing a governmental obligation or governmental function on behalf of the state, um, then it could be 
seen as a um, beneficiary or a potential beneficiary of sovereign immunity. But to the extent that it's just a state-owned company that is running a commercial enterprise, then it would not be subject to that immunity. Um, one example of like a, a state-owned company that had tried to avail itself to uh, sovereign immunity is the TNB Services v. China National Coal Group Corporation, um, which is a Hong Kong court decision. But um, the background of that case is that you had a Malaysian private company, TNB, that obtained an arbitral award for approximately $5.2 million in China, or against China Coal, sorry, which was a People's Republic of China coal conglomerate, which was wholly owned by the state. Um, the Hong Kong Court of First Instance granted an order of enforcement of that award, um, and then TNB then applied for a charging order in respect of shares held by China Coal in a Hong Kong company. China Cold argue that in light of being a wholly owned uh, state enterprise or state-owned company, it should be regarded as part of the Chinese government and therefore accorded immunity um, against fr- or immunity from execution against its assets. Um, the court found that um, that China Coal possessed independent legal personality, but that was based on specific evidence that they found a letter. Um, obtained by the Hong Kong Secretary of Justice, who intervened in the proceedings that said, save for extremely extraordinary circumstances where the conduct was performed on behalf of the state via appropriate authorization, etc., the state-owned enterprises of our country when carrying out commercial activities shall not be deemed as part of the central government and shall not be deemed as a body performing functions on behalf of the central government. Um, So there you have kind of clear evidence that showed that that commercial entity was not acting with the authority or the actual act um, in the exercise of sovereign authority of that state. Um, So they were not availed to that immunity defense. Right. So if we look to the different uh, levels of immunity, you have absolute immunity versus restrictive immunity. So absolute immunity, as the name suggests, is not affected by the characterization of the activity as sovereign versus commercial. um, And that, of course, can be waived, this absolute immunity Um, But you have something, for example, that to have absolute immunity, for example, is the state's own immunity not to be sued in its own courts, which they inevitably give up when um, they sign an arbitration clause, for example. But that absolute immunity is not a discussion on what type of assets are involved in the enforcement or what type of proceedings are before it in its national courts. It just says that they're absolutely um, immune. But... um, if we look at um, one case in that regard, which is the FG Hemisphere Associates versus the Dem- Democratic Republic of Congo, which is a case from 2003, um, that dispute arose out of an alleged breach of a financing agreement made in the 1980s between the DRC and a Congolese state-owned electricity company, Société Nationale d'Electricité, we like that, SND, Um, and a Yugoslavian construction company, Energo Invest. Um, And the purpose of the agreement was to finance the constructing of hydroelectric facility and high-tension electric transmission lines in the DRC. Um, When the DRC defaulted, then Energo Invest brought two arbitrations under the ICC rules against the DRC and SNDE, um, and they received um, awards in favor of Energo Invest, awarding it over $30 million plus interest, and neither award was challenged by the DRC. Um, 
the FG, the claimant, became aware that as part of a massive investment program in the DRC by a China whale ride group limited and three of its affiliates, Chinese state-owned companies, um, the sum of $221 million would be payable to DRC as entry fees for minimal exploitation rights. And so they tried to commence enforcement proceedings against those revenues. And for those of you who are trying to enforce an award or trying to write a memo on where people can enforce, those type of entry fees are actually quite common um, objects of enforcement. So in that case, the central issues of the case were whether on or and after the 1st of July 1997, Hong Kong common law recognized the doctrine of absolute or restrictive sovereign immunity. The second... We're, we're, sorry, we're in Hong Kong now. Yes. That, so the enforcement of um, the award was in Hong Kong. Okay. Because that's where the... Uh, oh, sorry, I didn't say that. The, um, the revenues would be held there in a bank account. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Just... No, no, no. Good to be clear. Uh, the second issue was if the restrictive doctrine applied into which category the relevant act in this instance fell. And then if the immunity was absolute or restrictive, um, was the relevant act in any way an act jury imperi, i.e. whether the DR- and whether the DRC had waived immunity by submitting itself to arbitration. Um, so in that case, the high court judge found um, an, or an ex, there was an ex parte order granting FG the leave to enforce the award. Um, later on in that same year, this was in 2008, uh, a high court judge said in Hong Kong set aside the original uh, enforcement order. Uh, the judge, leaning to a more restrictive of, approach, found that it was not necessary to decide on the first issue, given that the relevant act, quote unquote, i.e. the payment of the entry fees to the DRC, did not constitute a commercial transaction, but was rather part of a corporate venture, cooperative venture between sovereign states. The judge found the submission of the two original disputes to the arbitration under the ICC rules did not amount to an unambiguous waiver of immunity in the enforcement proceedings. Um, so there you kind of have a restrictive approach analysis. Um, in February 2010, so almost two years later, or a year and a half later, the Court of Appeal restored the original enforcement order, fi- finding that immediately prior to the handover of the Hong Kong to China in 1997, the former followed the restrictive approach as per, as per the uh, SIA of 1978, which was the Immunities Act, the National Immunities Act. Um, in June 2011, the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal reversed by holding a majority holding that Hong Kong's autonomy within the PRC does not encompass the conduct of foreign affairs and thus the determination of the relevant rule of state immunity. Um, And the region had no choice but to subscribe to China's position in favor of absolute immunity. So the interesting interplay there is the secession of states um, analysis. So it's a really kind of a public international law analysis to decide whether a state can has um, can be availed to an immunity defense is obviously whether they are its own sovereign or not and what laws apply um, during when a dispute arose. Um, so Can I ask you a question that has nothing to do with this, mm-hmm. but just based on the fact, since you're a practical person or supposed mm-hmm. to be? Mm-hmm. So in, in this case, they tried to enforce the award. It was a big award with, it seemed, a lot of interest as well because it had already grown over time Mm -hmm. and then it took quite some time to go through the court while the courts in hong kong were trying to figure out and you know sending it back and forth between the courts uh, trying to figure out the immunity issues and then 
So it, it took a few years. What happens with the interest? So if you apply for enforcing an award and then it takes like three years to get the enforcement order, mm-hmm. do you only enforce based on what you originally claimed when you tried to enforce three years earlier? Or can you then, you see what I'm saying? What happens with the years while the enforcement order is going through courts? Can you add interest for those years as well once you have like a final decision saying this is enforceable? Or are you bound by what you claimed when you filed the enforcement originally? That's a very good question. Um, I Because if it's hundreds of millions of dollars, which you seem to be here, and then you have three, three, years, three years of just like <laughs> hanging around in domestic courts, that, that's probably a few million dollars in interest that you would lose. Right. Um, I imagine that when these cases get resubmitted or get submitted on appeal that they adjust their requests. Um, yeah. But yeah, of course. But I think That's it's sensible. Yeah, I mean, that is the most sensible. But I, I, th- I think it's a very good question because you'll have to keep resubmitting, um, you know, calculations on how much it has grown. And also, I mean, very rarely you're going to find an asset that can satisfy the entire amount of your enforcement request. So um, usually you will enforce the, um, you know, you'll attack, okay, well, you want to get this play, how much is it yeah. worth? And it's going to only satisfy part of the claim. Um, yeah, so these usually happen in parallel, but, um, I see your point and it kind of goes to the next segment really <laughs> in a different context, whether they, um, a tribunal can, you know, reassess, but in this case it was going to a different court level. So it wouldn't be the same. Yeah, exactly. Thing. Exactly. Interesting point. Um, but then to, give you another um, separation of this issue or another outgrowth of this issue. You have two, two different types of immunity or what does it actually make you immune from? Is it, are you immune from a juris, immune from jurisdiction from submitting yourself to the jurisdiction of an arbitral tribunal or a court, or are you getting immune from an enforcement measure? Um, so there are different types of immunity. You have the jurisdictional immunity and you have an immunity against enforcement the jurisdictional immunity is enjoined by a state before the courts of another state. It is usually far less relevant in the arbitration context than immunity from jurisdiction. Um, the reason, okay, so, I mean, if a state enters into an agreement in writing with a foreign natural or juridical person to submit to arbitration differences relating to a commercial transaction, that state cannot invoke immunity from jurisdiction before a court of another state which is otherwise competent in a proceedings. Um, And this refers to the validity, interpretation, and the application of the arbitration agreement, the arbitration procedure, or the confirmation of setting aside an award unless the arbitration agreement otherwise provides. Um, So that has to do, as I just said, with a a challenge to um, an award or also a challenge to jurisdiction that can be heard before a court and a a state cannot cannot say that it has not waived its immunity based on the fact of, you know, a UN convention that says that they don't have to appear in the other state's courts because by virtue of the fact that you've signed on to an arbitration agreement, you're also waiving your immunity to that challenge to that arbitration agreement. Um, And then you have the immunity from enforcement, which I think is the most common because if you've signed on to the arbitration agreement, as everyone who has listened here will find themselves in a dispute that an arbitration agreement exists, or we hope it exists, Um, then you have immunity from enforcement and that protects against the property owned by a state. So you have immovables, land, premises, movable property, and all sorts of rights. Um, 
And while enforcement immunity may be waived, um, not very often, but it may be waived, enforcement proceedings often turn on the question of whether the property is specifically in use or intended for use by the state for something other than um, a government non-commercial purpose. Um, And there, a very good example is the Yukos case. But before, just to give you some examples of um, stuff that you can attach, because that always is a question and it's quite hard to do, but... It's a born arbitration. All over again. It's a born... It's exactly. And you usually... You trace them. Yeah. Asset tracing. So you have companies like Kroll. Do you know of any other asset tracing companies right off the top of your head? Uh, yeah, but I know too many, so we right. better not make not, yeah. uh, any free advertising for a specific one <laughs> so there are so many uh yeah and that usually has to do with any any bank accounts or any kind of financials um that you're trying to find about a state because those are quite difficult to find but the movable assets are a bit easier so if you have for example a state that is operating an oil rig outside of their country then that is something that can be the subject of an attachment um, as I said, in this Congo case, it can also be revenues that a company or a country is expected to receive from a commercial transaction, i.e. a gas line running through um, that country. So you have this um, one belt, one road thing in China that was supposed to go through a bunch of different countries. Any, you know, a country is going to receive revenue from the organi- or from the company that is operating that pipeline to allow them access to the land through which this pipeline runs and that's um and that revenue is something that a state is receiving although it is by virtue of the fact that it is their sovereign land that it's going through the actual transaction can be considered and should be considered in my opinion commercial and therefore subject to attachment um if we look at the yukos case really quickly um before we give some final thoughts everyone knows that um there were some majority shareholders in Yukos that had an award recognized in France in late 2014, um, and they were initially excess- successful attaching about a billion's worth of um, allegedly Russian assets, including the construction site of a Russian Orthodox cathedral in Paris and funds belonging to the Russian space agency uh, Roscosmos. Um, in the next three years, however, those attachments were lifted by French courts, which later found in 2016 that the cathedral... Um, which were, <laughs> which is funny that you brought that up, Joel. They were finished. The construction project was con- was finished during the proceedings. Yeah. <laughs> um, they found that that uh, cathedral could benefit from sovereign immunity. Um, into and then in 2017, a year later, the proceedings against Roscosmos, uh, the Court of Appeal found that the space agent, the space agency, enjoys functional independence and financial and budgetary autonomy from Russia noting that Russia is not liable for Rokosmos's obligations or vice versa. Um, so the court held that the funds attached did not, in fact, belong to Russia, and therefore those um, judgments were lifted. France, in 2016, adopted a new law on sovereign immunity. Oh, right. Yeah, I was going to say. Called the Yukos Law or the Putin Amendment. Um, <laughs> under the new law, a party may enforce against a foreign state's property only with the prior authorization of the judge, which will only be given if the state concerned has consented to the enforcement, allocated or earmarked property for the satisfaction of a claim, or if the judgment of an arbitral award has been rendered against the state and the property in question is used or intended to be used for a non-governmental commercial purpose. Um, So that is an interesting outgrowth in the Yukos arbitrations. 
finally, and we'll wrap up this segment just discussing about the enforcement immunity and the ICSA convention. We have a interesting article, or it's in the, the commentary from uh, Schroyer on the ICSA convention that there's an inherent problem in ICSA arbitrations when you have Article 53.1 and Article 43.1 that basically says 53.1 saying awards shall be binding on the parties to not be subject to any imu- any appeal. Um, and they must comply with the terms of the award, except to the extent that its enforcement shall have been stayed to the relevant provisions of this convention. Then you have 54, one that says that each contracting party shall recognize an award as binding and enforce the pecuniary ob- obligations imposed by that award within the territories as if it were a final judgment of a court in that state. Um, and Schroyer has commented that Article 55 is the Achilles heels of the convention because it says that nothing in paragraph in Article 54 that I just read shall be construed as derogating from the law in force in any contracting part, contracting state relating to immunity of that state or of any foreign state from execution. Um, so they uh, the, the drafting of the ICSA convention um I guess, kind of supposed that all states would be compliant with any award against it, just out of the shame of not paying their award. But clearly, that was a theoretical um, assumption, considering that we have non-compliant states uh, today. Yeah, I mean, that's so it's cute. A colleague of mine wrote a PhD thesis like a year ago on uh, the different parts of the development of enforcement mechanisms and investment law and also found out that the, the the discussions were the same when they drafted the New York Convention, that it was basically a few people suggested that states may not pay up uh, on their own motion in the future and that we should probably address this, but they were like laughed out of the room because <laughs> everyone assumed in the 50s and the 60s that every state will always pay up if they lose an arbitration. But as you say, History has taught us yes. who was right and who was wrong. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, yeah, it's basically a gentleman's agreement at the end of the day. So if someone's not a gentleman, what are you going to do? Exactly. You have to chase airplanes and uh, oil revenues all around the world. Yeah, I don't have any interesting um, anecdotes on enforcement per se. But um, I do know that an interesting case that I had heard of was, you know, on an army base, um, you have people who work on that army base and they can be from all over the world considering if it's a, you know, a different war or whatever, but that army base can be considered, um, kind of a, an activity that is a representative of the state because they're part of this, you know, national army. Um, but within that army, they also have schools and hospitals and, um, they sell things in businesses because the base is supposed to, you know, run like its own little economy within, you know, in a different country. So, you know, an interesting conflict of laws issue is, okay, well, what law applies to that? And is that person acting within their their capacity? Or did they have capacity to act in a certain way based off their, you know, their role in the army? And was the activity they were actually doing part of their um, governmental task? Or was it a commercial activity? A classic, and and our part of the role is, of course, the Siedlmeyer story as well speaking of uh, interesting enforcement stories which we don't have to recount now uh, because we have talked about it before but basically the German businessman Franz Edelmeier spent most 
of his life trying to collect on the first award that was rendered against Russia, I think. But he's written a book that I haven't read, uh, but it's called, I think, Welcome to Putingrad. <laughs> and it's basically the story about how he collected on an SEC award against Russia. It took him 15, 20 years, but he, he managed to do it. So if you have a sickly interest in... Uh, and enforcement stories. You can go buy Siedlmeier's book. It's some. It's a phase of the proceedings that we willfully ignore. I feel because it just, it it's such a headache to and to end up getting your money that you kind of just don't want to have that be a part of the process because that is inevitably not really our job. Um, but it's a it's a, a very complicated task, and now more clients are becoming more sophisticated and asking about okay, but when do I get paid? And you're like, well, when does the plane land in a different jurisdiction? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a bit, it's a bit of a difficult one. Um, but we should say, I mean, it's still the the rule is that even states pay up, and right. the states who, in bad faith, try to hide behind immunity to not pay their arbitral awards. I mean, you can count them on the fingers on one hand, basically. Yeah, yeah. So in most cases, this is not a run-of-the-mill problem for you. Thank goodness. And shall we move on? Yes, let us. All right, we're talking about the power to reconsider your own decision if you're a tribunal in investment arbitration. Although, uh, as is often the case, most of the principles here, they apply also in commercial arbitration. So this issue is not specifically, like clearly expressly addressed by either the ICSID convention and its arbitration rules or by the UNCTRAL rules, for example. It doesn't say, you know, in a nice, beautiful provision, the extent to which a tribunal may go back and change a decision that has already been issued. Uh, but there are a bunch of other rules that like indirectly or by analogy may help us answer this question, which we will get back to, I think. But let's start with ICSID, because this is where the debate is and where there are interesting cases, some of which, as I hinted in the introduction, that I've written up for, for IA reporters, because there's been a few, actually, um, ICSID cases specifically about tribunals uh, who have been faced with the question of whether or not they can go back and reverse or revisit their decisions. And the the whole sort of um, the crux of the matter is the distinction between decisions and awards, which is familiar, I think, to many arbitration mm -hmm. lawyers. And there's there's even um, an article, and I think in the Exit Review called "Are Exit Awards from Mars and Exit Decisions from Venus?" <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> and we will enter this discussion with the help of a dissenting opinion which is always fun. We have a long tradition of reading dissenting opinions. And in this case, it is uh, Georges Abizab, who is a famous dissenter and has written several interesting ones. And it's from the case Conoco Phillips versus Venezuela. And uh, this is the way he structured the problem, because what happened here was that the majority differed from Abizab. Uh, which is why he dissented when the issue was whether or not the tribunal could revisit a decision it had already made, but uh, before the award, the final award, was rendered. And the majority of the tribunal found that it could not 
basically they said that the decision is final even though it's not an award we have made a decision and we we can't go back you know procedural efficiency and whatnot which abisab did not agree with and he uh, said the following so article 48.3 of the exit convention specifies that an award deals with every question submitted to the tribunal and it must state the reasons upon which it is based this provision is supplemented by Rule 47 of the Exit Arbitration Rules, which mandates that the award contain the decision of the tribunal on every question submitted to it. In other words, Abisab wrote, the award must incorporate the conclusions on all questions submitted to the tribunal and decided before the final award, i.e. it must incorporate all quote-unquote decisions. So in an award, everything must be decided. And now I'm quoting again here. In contrast, a decision under the Exit Convention, as opposed to an award, is one that does not deal with every question submitted to the tribunal. For example, a decision upholding jurisdiction and a partial decision on the merits, they are just such decisions that fall short of the definition of an award, in the same way as decisions on procedural matters and recommendations of interim measures do. Therefore, he found... Decisions under the Exit Convention have a half existence until they have been incorporated in the final award. Mm -hmm. And it is only awards and not decisions that can be recognized and enforced under Article 54 that you talked about, Brian. And the post-award remedies in the Exit Convention are available only for awards and not for decisions. Blah, 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 blah. There are many provisions dealing with what you can do with an award, but they don't deal with decisions. Um, so that was the basis for Abisab finding basically that a decision is different from an award and we should be able to go back and change a decision if we feel that it is appropriate. And he called this a peculiarity of the exit procedural system, which is, I think, interesting. If we move into like general international law, dispute resolution more widely, including commercial arbitration, because that's what Abisab did, he said that um, this difference between decision and awards uh, distinguishes ICSID from most other international procedural systems, such as ICJ, criminal courts, the European Court of Human Rights, and so on and so forth. Because here, all these systems, they provide for uh, decisions, particularly on preliminary objections and partial decisions and things like that, to be open to, to remedies, basically, that are available in these systems. Um, so... He said basically. Sorry. So those decisions are more final than an ICSID decision, he's saying? Yeah, exactly. Okay. He even said that ICSID is lex specialis compared to every other uh, international dispute resolution system in the sense that decisions are uh, more temporary. Right. And here, if I may, I want to add a point to, to his dissent uh, and sort of move into non ICSID territory for a while because what he says i.e. that this distinction between decisions and awards is unique to ICSID is not 100% true because if we arbitrate outside of the ICSID system, as our listeners know very well at this point, we must have a place of arbitration. And this type of question is an example of what is typically governed by the Lex Loci Arbitri, which means that we must look at the domestic arbitration law at the place of arbitration to determine the status of decisions and by extension, whether arbitrators can go back and change an earlier decision. And here, there are actually a lot of different approaches. Just to give you one example that I know pretty well, the Swedish Arbitration Act does not recognize decisions. 
So the Swedish Arbitration Act is similar to the Exit Convention because it speaks only of awards, i.e. final decisions by mm-hmm. which the, the whole dispute is determined. So decisions along the way are not res judicata, for example. They cannot be challenged in set-aside proceedings in, in Sweden and they aren't recognizable, uh, put in, in a careless manner, under Swedish law. Right. So so it's in a Swedish seated arbitration would be similar to an exit arbitration. And uh, the, I think the Uncertain Model Law sets forth a pretty structured uh, set of rules which differ a little bit from the Swedish approach. But the basic tenet is that the arbitral proceedings under the model law are terminated by the final award or by an order of the tribunal to that effect. And that terminates the tribunal's mandate. So it's sort of a general rule. And then then there are... uh, specific exceptions for corrections, interpretation, and supplementation in Article 33 of the model law, but they only apply to awards and not to decisions. So if you, I haven't done so much research on this, and I haven't asked Rishi to do it either, but if if you were to go into further details on domestic approaches, I think to oversimplify uh, like a, a basic common denominator in many jurisdictions is that uh, they have a different approach than the Swedish one, i.e. they do not allow for decisions to be re-addressed. And the point is, I mean, the reason for this is that arbitrators should not be able to change their mind or revisit matters already addressed in a prior decision unless unless something material has happened, mm-hmm. which you mentioned as the smart lawyer that you are, Brian. New oh, key, key fact. <laughs> And that is, I think, we there, there's a lot of domestic jurisprudence on this, that the, if new facts emerge, of course, you should be able, or not of course, but that's a general point, I think, that many courts seem to subscribe to. You should be able to revisit the decision. Uh, and that brings us back to the exit cases, because that's what's been discussed in some of these pretty well-known exit cases on this point. But before moving on to these, I, I want to return to Abisab's dissent just to point out that it is just this. It's a it's a dissent because the majority found uh, otherwise that decisions cannot be reviewed by a tribunal. And here I want to applaud Rishi for finding a great snippet from the Abisab dissent, which we really should add to our running series of great dissents in arbitration. So this has not so much to do with our substantive topic, but it's just so fun when arbitrators are being uh, rude to each other in written <laughs> form. This is what Abisab said about the majority's findings, and I'm going to exclude all the exclamation points that Rishi had included in his research. <laughs> <laughs> in these circumstances, I don't think that any self-respecting tribunal that takes seriously its overriding legal and moral task of seeking the truth and dispensing justice according to law on that basis can pass over such evidence close its blinkers and proceed to build on its now severely contestable findings, ignoring the existence and the relevance of such glaring evidence. It would be shutting itself off by an epistemic closure into a subjective make-believe world of its own creation. (laughs) Semicolon. A virtual reality in order to fend off probable objective reality. Semicolon. A legal comedy of errors and the theater... On the theater of the absurd, not to say travesty of justice, 
that makes a mockery not only of exit arbitration but of the very idea of adjudication. <laughs> wow! Applause, 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 applause. Yeah, this guy felt strongly about the power to consider <laughs> your own decisions. What a beast! That's like a, a bitter breakup right there. <laughs> yeah, right. You're delusional. <laughs> Do you remember when I read a Jan Paulson dissent in, in which he spent two pages basically saying that he thinks his core arbitrators are wise and competent and impressive and intellectually impressive, but that he doesn't agree with them on this minor point. This is like the, the polar opposite of that approach to, to a dissenting opinion. <laughs> exactly. You're all stupid. You're making a mockery out of the whole thing. You're killing exit. Bye bye. I wonder who got reappointed more after that case. <laughs> I think he has. He's pretty old now, but he. There are a few other. Uh, I don't think as colorfully worded as this one, but there are a few other Abisab dissents. He is a, uh, or was at least a prolific arbitrator. Uh, but this uh, and a wordsmith. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think this case, I think, is from 2014. The award, so it's not that long ago. But uh, going back to the substance, I just want to circle back to the what the exit jurisprudence on this to actually answer the question because it's in the exit context that we talk about this the most so we already said what the majority found in the conoco uh, phillips versus venezuela case then we have uh, perenco ecuador versus ecuador uh, where the tribunal found that decisions of exit tribunals so decisions of tribunals have res judicata effect and can only in exceptional circumstances be open for the tribunal to reconsider so that was uh, uh, sort of an opening, a little bit more. You can consider in exceptional circumstances. Then we have an interesting case, uh, Standard Chartered Bank versus Tanesco, which was a contractual case actually at Exit. Uh, and they found similar uh, similar thing to the Burlington versus Ecuador case, basically uh, saying that it's incorrect to characterize decisions as res judicata uh, as opposed to awards. So uh, to put it in a, in a simplified way, both these tribunals found that they could reopen their own decisions. Uh, and in the Tanesco case, it was actually pretty a, a good idea to put it, uh, frankly, because what had happened was that the, this uh, respondent had kept a bunch of key facts, uh, omit, omitted key facts from the uh, record on purpose. Uh, and those Yikes. facts, like crucial for the tribunal's jurisdiction and then those facts were dug up later on so we have these the exceptional circumstances that we talk about actually right and this is what i wrote about for i reporters if you have a special interest in this you should go and search for tanesco an i reporter and then i said initially that there's a bunch of other articles in the exit convention which is something that should be in the toolbox of, of investment treaty arbitration lawyers i just want to mention these because that's what most of these tribunals have been discussing in finding their conclusions for example we have article 51 which permits a tribunal to revise its award on the ground uh, of the discovery of some fact that uh, may have affected the award this is what um Burlington Ecuador Tribunal relied on by analogy to say that okay if, if we we are actually able to uh, revise an award if something has happened then we should also be able to revise a decision that makes sense I think intuitively right right and then we have article 52 the annulment grounds uh, that Ecuador tried in another case to rely on in order to get the tribunal to revisit a decision made before the award. And here, in essence, Ecuador argued that uh, if you 
can show an annulment ground prior to the award being rendered that would grant the tribunal the power to reopen, amend, or reverse its decision. So you would have sort of a preemptive annulment case, mm-hmm. basically, uh, which did not fly because, as the tribunal pointed out, there's a division of power under the exit convention, and you cannot use annulment grounds in front of a tribunal to ask them to review their own decisions. That's only for annulment committees to do, basically. Right. And then we have also Article 41.2 of the Exit Convention, providing that jurisdictional objections can be addressed by a tribunal on its own motion at any stage of the proceedings, it says. And this uh, has been relied on in the Tanesco case that I mentioned, I think in the ad hoc committee uh, decision, actually, uh, where they reviewed whether or not the tribunal was right in reopening its decision. And it found that this is like, because it had to do with jurisdiction and the respondent has had did something that actually affected jurisdiction or omitted something that affected jurisdiction. This was part of the tribunal's competence, competence power. So they, they are able to re- review their own jurisdictional decisions as part of competence, competence, which we have talked about mm-hmm. on this very podcast. And, uh, that is, I think, basically it. So we could sum up and, well, let me ask myself this. Can an arbitral tribunal revisit something that it has already decided before there's a final award? And as always... Like sui sponte, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, I mean, regardless, actually, that's a general question to wrap everything up. Okay. Regardless of whether or not the parties take it up or if the tribunal does it on its own motion. Can the tribunal revisit something? That has already been decided. And the only answer we always accept as correct on this podcast is what? I'm asking you now, right? It depends. That's right. It <laughs> depends. Under the Exit Convention, yes, it seems that under many circumstances, a decision is reviewable by the tribunal. Outside of the Exit Convention, it depends on the approach of the seat. And the general approach is that no decisions are not reviewable as opposed to awards, bar some significant change in circumstances. I think that's a neat way of summarizing uh, the uh, analysis thus far. Very clean and neat and very well um, digestible, like you probably do for your students. Mm, yeah, well, most of the work is thanks to Rishi. Again. <laughs> but I'm going to print the Abhisab descent and put it up on my wall in my office, I think. <laughs> I'm going to get a tattoo on it. <laughs> Next to DCF. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're building a, a wall of fame on your body. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like the movie Memento, where he like forgets everything, but he has tattoos on his body to remind him. Yeah, then, then yours is going to say, a legal comedy of errors on the theater of the absurd. <laughs> and you're going to be like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> oh, he needs to have record that so we can have it as a sound bite. Yeah, that's right. Okay, uh, we are already halfway into Happy Fan Time, it seems like, so let's move on officially as well. to explore the dynamic between a money-making cynic practitioner and a poor idealistic academic some more i think oh my god you have such a high view of yourself Uh (laughs) uh-huh 
<laughs> I basically just said that I was poor and an academic. Yeah, but it's one of both. those like starving artists, like, you know, you don't understand the the hardship of someone so talented as me type of thing. Yeah, just let me have it. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, let's explore it. And we will explore it in the context of teaching, something that is close to heart of um, both students and practitioners and teachers. We have all studied arbitration and sooner or later most of us most of us will at some point also teach arbitration because that is how this business works, mm-hmm. <laughs> for better or for worse. But I first want to just put um, a little uh, within parentheses introduction to this because there's a lot of discussion recently about teaching international law. Right. As opposed to international arbitration law. But there's, I have a point here, so uh, bear with me. Okay. Because there's, um, on Ojimid, or maybe on young Ojimid, I am p- exactly in between the grown-up and the young in <laughs> terms of age. So I think I subscribe <laughs> to both, and I don't make a distinction on which email list is, is which. But on either of these, uh, maybe on both, actually, there was a an article circulated by a man named Roy, Ryan Scoville, uh, published in Indiana Law Journal last year. It was called, it is called International Law in National Schools. And we also have the excellent Anthea Roberts book, Is International Law International, that we talked about in season one, probably. Mm-hmm. Basically, these two authors both argue that the way international law develops is significantly shaped by the way international law is taught. So the historical way of viewing international law is that it's, you know, universal, it's one and the same, it's floating above in a perfect universe on top of diverse and fragmented national laws. However, this notion is now challenged. And that's sort of the basic point of both of these works. And I'm going to cite the Scoville article here, because he writes that attitudes about international law do not simply exist. They must come from somewhere, and it is reasonable to think that at least one of their principal sources is the classroom, which provides the only significant training on international law that most lawyers ever receive. If this is right, then national aggregations of small choices about curricular design and classroom instruction carry significant policy consequences over the long run, and non-compliance with international law should come as no surprise given <laughs> the very varied state of training around the globe. So this is... I mean, we are not a podcast about international law, but about international arbitration. So I think we could turn to this and discuss how the field is shaped by the way that it is taught. Yeah. And this is sort of where we enter, or at least in my mind, we enter the practitioner versus academics thing. Uh, Because I think, and I think you would agree, although you might have a different normative conclusion on whether or not it is desirable that arbitration is very uh, hands-on and it's taught that way right it's uh, it's in the anglo-american tradition it's a skill it's not a science you know it's something that right. is taught as as a tool that you could then use in in practice right exactly i mean like an llm is almost like a trade school yeah exactly and this is i mean i i i'm part of this we are all part of this and it's because there's a market need for these skills, but I have to be the the grumpy guy and say that I think it's also partly a reflection of the fact that arbitration as a field hasn't matured yet. We don't have this, like, we, we start to see it in research, but not in the way it's taught, critical examinations of what this does to the way arbitration is 
practiced basically that it's i don't know to me it's not always sufficient that's why i enjoy the podcast so much to just use arbitration teaching as a problem solving task i think there are much more interesting aspects to the field and uh, the power structures and what how arbitration is used and so on and so forth and i think this is maybe where we differ and i'm now making you the spokesperson of 95 percent of the arbitration community maybe (laughs) (laughs) not justified i don't know (laughs) yeah i i'm kind of lost in where you see the distinction per se just well, I mean, if you compare it, maybe not in an American law school context, and that might be uh, where I'm losing you as well, because I think ah, I mo- most most legal fields are maybe taught this way in the U.S. and maybe other Anglo-American traditions as well. But in in my legal background, in many other civil or legal backgrounds, you know, if you, if you study private law or criminal law, you have a much more systemic public law, especially. You look at it in a much different way and you treat it as a science you know you have to read all the old uh, scholars on it and you have to like see how everything sticks together and you also right. examine critically like assumptions and you have a long body of case law and all these famous people and say so you sort of uh, i don't know you you position yourself uh, in relation to the subject in a very different way right. from arbitration which is just like that's true solve this problem there you go basically. yeah no definitely because i'm yeah, the way we're taught is we we um, they show you the extremes and then they say everything else is a fact-based inquiry, so you kind of have to figure it out on the job type of thing, right? You're going to say, yeah. um, well, you have the eerie doctrine in the U.S., which is basically like you know the most extreme fact scenario on some guy in one state was traveling to another state, gets hit by a car from a third state, and then here's the kind of like how you analyze that conflict. Okay, well, that's the hardest you're going to be able to see. So now anything else is, is going to be um, easy, and you'll just figure it out on the job. And we even have, you know, on we have like clinical programs to help us with like on the job training, but because we, we don't have anything like you guys do, for example, where you work three years and then you become an advocate or here in the UK, you have like a training contract for, you know, uh, almost three years and then you, you can qualify. So we don't have that. So it, it gets kind of blended into our edu- into our education. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think the overarching point that I'm trying to make, although not successfully, is that our arbitration field um, is heavily influenced by what you're describing rather than uh, by what I'm describing. Do you think it's an Anglo influence or do you think it's by virtue of the fact that there's it's just a new field? Mm, that's a very good question. It is probably a little bit of both um, because it hasn't been around uh, for as long, which is not, I mean, it's not necessarily true come to think of it we have i mean the new york convention is is still pretty old and we have writings from the 60s and the 70s and we we could start to treat arbitration the way uh we treat other fields at least in 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 some yeah teaching traditions like we you know we have these doctrines for example that we have in every legal subfield Mm-hmm. And the way we treat them in arbitration is basically to, uh, you know, to apply them to the facts. Whereas in other fields, you have to like understand where did they come from and in what context and how does it relate to like the rest of the code. And I don't know what I'm trying to say, even if I am convincing myself, because I have always enjoyed arbitration precisely because it's not <laughs> finished yeah, exactly. cr- criminal law from the 19th century. Exactly. <laughs> but I, I'm, I do have to say, though, that this is, I think also 
uh, where or why there are so many people teaching who aren't professional lecturers, which I don't necessarily view as a problem uh, on the other way around, actually, typically. But this is, um, and I know many academics in many different parts of the world who see this tension that in our field, it's completely accepted, even encouraged to get external practitioners to teach as part of the curriculum, which is completely frowned upon in most other fields. Right. It could be useful, of course, every now and then to uh, bring in an expert to give like a guest lecture, but you don't give like substantive teaching time out of the curriculum to uh, practicing lawyers in most other fields, whereas it's completely accepted in arbitration. I wonder if it has to do with the confidentiality of arbitration. Oh, that's a good point. Not that, we don't... not that you're breaking confidentiality, but you know, I know when I'm teaching, especially in your course, um, and I mean, it's, to the extent that investment arbitral awards are publicized, but like are published, but some of them are not. And the only way that you can think, especially as a teacher, of an interesting example is something that you can draw from your own experience. Right. That's a great point. You don't have a lot of published awards, especially not in commercial arbitration, to draw exactly. upon. You need to speak from first-hand experience. Yeah, and you, of course, speak about it in a general sense, but it allows you to kind of say, well, the, an interesting way to think about this issue is, like, what if this happens? And then you realize, you know, and you, every case is different that you work on, so it kind of makes sense that that's a way to, to teach because you just teach with the funky examples from the past. Yeah, right, exactly. And so, and by that logic, the best teachers should be the most senior practitioners mm -hmm. who have like the widest database in their mind of examples and war stories to draw upon if they can utilize them to anything useful, you know, beyond war stories and turn it into actual pedagogical. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I was going to say, because is it, a, is it an effective teaching tool to just give someone a war story? And I think the answer is no, because no. <laughs> you're not giving someone the critical skills to be able to solve the next problem like that on their own when they're hand fed what the analysis was. Yeah, exactly. And this is, I mean, thank you for making my argument for me, because this is something <laughs> that I feel pretty strongly. And I think many people who teach professionally, which I don't do full time and I haven't done and maybe won't even do but I still I've been a part of this like permanent faculty world for for five six years now and I've seen this firsthand good lecturers are you know it's a, it's a skill that they develop over time there's a lot of psychology involved they train uh, any serious law faculty or any faculty really they have you know the uh, pedagogical training psychology for people who teach at university in order to uh, develop skills so that you know how to uh, write the examinations and how the students learn. Everybody has a different way of learning things. And, you know, there's so many things that go into like the professional craft that is teaching at a university, which you typically don't have if you just bring people in to tell world stories. Even if you have charismatic people who teach well, uh, they do other things primarily, and it makes it pretty hard to like give directions as the course director right. director it's very hard to get a senior arbitrator to come in and and to try to like get them to teach the way that you want them to teach as the course director where you have like a pedagogical plan that has been you know thought through and approved through various faculty boards and stuff and then you have this like pedagogical established idea of how you want to do it and 
you can't tell Gary Bourne that he has to like use this or that method or conform to that. You're just happy that Gary Bourne shows up. Right. So you give him the keys to the car and then you leave him alone. And if you do that too much, it's pretty hard to maintain any kind of serious teaching. I think that's the problem. <laughs> Take it out for a joyride. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I think an interesting example that we can kind of touch upon is because I have taught your program or Kai's program through the help of the lesson plan that you have created that was pedagogically thought through as you're now advocating. Um, and I think that the, the approach that you took in the lesson plan would, would have been complete, not different, but it really, um, you can tell that it was what much more thought through than kind of what I would have done, which is kind of like tease out the main principle, give some examples of it kind of like, it's almost like I would teach the way I would draft, um, a submission kind of where you just like start with the rule and then kind of apply the facts of different things to that rule that you've kind of created. Oh yeah. Um, and then you oh. get the conclusion. So it's almost like a persuasive lecture on what I just said was <laughs> correct. Um, and what I taught, what we, what I lectured on was res judicata and lease pendants. And if a practitioner were teaching it, they would say, okay, there's a, it's a three prong test, more or less, you know, same party, same, same, same uh, subject matter and same requests. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And then here's some examples. Um, goodbye. Yeah, exactly. Which is, I mean, I, I think like the um, lukewarm, boring sort of, uh, conclusion is that it's good to have a little bit of both, uh, of course, because that, that could be useful or it is useful, uh, because it also comes with the war stories and exposure to the actual practice and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I think also like the bed and brother bed, bread and butter of the teaching uh, should really be a part of some kind of plan. So what we do at the master's program is that we have a problem-based learning method in which, you know, the, the point is rather to uh, first establish what do we want the students to take with, with them from this seminar or whatever we're having. And the answer to that is typically skills rather than knowledge. Like we want them to develop how to acquire knowledge rather than to acquire the knowledge in the mm -hmm. seminar room and the way you do that is to activate them and get them to like think for themselves and like try to solve problems step by step rather than having just you know information told to them that they then write down and memorize and that is it sounds easy and and banal and rather obvious but it's kind of tricky to structure teaching in a way that you as the teacher even when you know everything that you are supposed to teach you're not supposed to you know, go into Castro-style lecturing, rather trying to get the students themselves to figure things out. Because even if they're wrong, substantively, it sort of gets something going in their in their brains when they have to start thinking in a, in a problem-structuring kind of way. Yeah. Um, I think also one thing that might be slightly bothering me is the fact that we have the market forces that more or less require any good arbitration lawyer to teach and have it as at least have it as part of a resume or firm bio, you know, that you teach at universities X, Y, and Z. It's that a has badge turned of honor. Into a it's a yeah, badge exactly. Of honor for sure. I think it's even more, or maybe less than a badge of honor. It feels almost like a, a mandatory part of your portfolio. And why is that career portfolio? No, because it turns it into what you just said—a badge. Like, right. It doesn't necessarily mean anything other than that you know a person at a university 
which isn't part- something you should put on your resume. <laughs> right. A partner is getting a junior to write another presentation for them that they will not deliver themselves, but <laughs> yeah. up to the partner to then give to the students. Yeah, I mean, I understand why, and I I won't be uh, raining on the parade of people who enjoy the cross-fertilization between academia and practice, because that is, after all, the whole point of this podcast also, and our friendship, even. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great, and that's where the fun things happen. I, I just think it's a little bit annoying sometimes as an academic to see uh, people who are proud of their teaching, which is like one guest lecture four years ago for two hours at a university and then they put it up there next to like represented sovereign state before the ICJ and you know it's two different things and one should be on the resume and one shouldn't it's true I think that um I think the reason why it is is because when practitioners become so practical and they become practical focused it uh, it almost isn't an intellectual you there is no example of an intellectual curiosity unless you're writing articles that aren't experience-based either um, yeah. That you don't, you lose as a practitioner, mostly because you're too busy, busy, but you lose that kind of analytical tool because the practitioner side is just, okay, let's jam it into the rule that we want to help our client. Um, and whereas if you're a teacher, you have the ability to kind of expand your mind into this, you know, theoretical realm that you yourself can think of the fact patterns and you yourself can think of the problems and and permutations of the issues without being prompted by the fact pattern of your client so if you're able to teach then it shows that you can think beyond what's put in front of you Um, and i think that's why some practitioners think it's an it's a nice thing to see oh yeah exactly Tell me more about my expansive mind, please. (laughs) (laughs) I'm giving you so many compliments. No, but I noticed that when we were at Ica and I told you this, I was like, I never realized the the benefit of an academic period. No, just kidding. The benefit of an academic on a panel because you see these panels and again, it turns into, well, this one case I had um, and it turns into, well, why haven't we thought of this? Why haven't we explored this? Why haven't, why can't we do this? Um, why don't we do this? You know, there's all of these questions, which, as you yourself has said, is the key to most um, academic discourse, uh, with, especially with students, is just asking questions. Yeah. Um, and and you see that benefit of an academic, and and if that's being translated to the students, then you're you're going to create more of a you know an innovative market than than just old practitioners. Well put, Brian. <laughs> Did I give you enough credit for your yeah. career path? <laughs> Thank you. I'm happy with my choice now, now that I submitted. <laughs> exactly. I wasn't yeah. two weeks ago, but you now, don't really now I have am. a choice. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Are we we're way beyond one hour, which was my mental target for this episode. That's what we, happened. Yeah, we try to keep it short, everyone. We really try. But so um, let's sum it up. Where can they find us? Um... Well, uh, in London and Copenhagen, respectively, if you happen <laughs> to, dro- yeah. to, to drop by. Yeah. Otherwise, you can email us at thearbitrationstation at gmail.com uh, or find us on, on Twitter where we, our handle is the ARB station because the arbitration station is too long for Twitter's snobby oh, taste. <laughs> um, and thank you to our researchers. Uh, thank you, Rishi, for your time with us. And welcome, Dimitri. That's right. And uh, see you around, Brian Kotick. See you around, Joel.